very short message, short lesson today probably. Just wanted to take up on page 172 in Goldsworthy's writings. Wanted to take up this matter of the centrality of the gospel. And I said to you that this matter, we've been talking about the gospel and certainly in the last lecture. And uh, this is a, a somewhat of a detour, a slight, slight detour from my uh, central purpose in this study, which is to, to set forth the unity and continuity of the scriptures from the beginning, first verse of Genesis to the last verse of Revelation. But central to that, of course, the centrality of that is Christ. It is Christ. And so then, it is befitting for us to take up the subject of the gospel. And uh, Goldsworthy says the centrality of the gospel can be expressed with regard to any aspect of biblical teaching of salvation. It means that what God achieved in Christ is the goal of all God's purposes as they are expressed in both the Old and New Testament. In this lies the meaning of Christ as Alpha and Omega, the centrality of the gospel. That is that all that God has done in creation, the fact of creation, and then all that he's done in creation, all of that, all of that is summed up in the purpose is in Christ. It's in Christ. And no matter whether you find the, that expressed in Old Testament or New Testament, Old Testament symbol, symbolism type and types or New Testament truths and experiences, whatever, it's all centered in Christ. That cannot, must not be missed. Now, he begins to break down in this chapter some of the areas in which the centrality of the gospel uh, may be viewed. Uh, as as often is the case, and I don't I don't uh, shy away from uh, saying it and referring to it. I, I I do not think that Goldsworthy's terminology is, uh, I feel that it, it's often less than it could be. I don't know the, his context, where he was and his writing and his, his teaching and so forth may account for a lot of that, and, and that's fine. <clears throat> but for, for us and in our setting, <clears throat> I sometimes take exception with his terminology, and when I do, I point that out to you. And as I say now, in the following pages, he is handling five of the areas in which this the centrality of the gospel uh, or the fact of the centra, central uh, purpose of Christ can be seen. And uh, I, I uh, would change the terminology, but I, I appreciate what he's trying to say. Number one on page 172, he says, Christ is the meaning of creation. I, I don't, I don't like to say that Christ is anything other than the Son of God or whatever the scripture says of him. 
Uh, I think that's very poor terminology, but I've rewritten that title. Christ is the purpose for creation. Christ is the purpose for creation. Creation exists for the purpose of creating a people, redeeming those people, and having those people for himself. So I prefer to say Christ is the purpose for creation. He said we do not fully grasp the biblical teaching on creation until we have dealt with those passages that speak of Christ in creation. Of course, John chapter 1, Colossians uh, chapter 1, where he's spoken of as, Christ is spoken of as the one in whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created. Uh, so it's it, the emphasis here is that, that I mean, there's so many scriptures, like I say, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, John 1, 1 through 2, uh, which speak of the whole existence of the world for the purposes. It's all wrapped up in Christ. Some may think of the gospel, he says, some may think of the gospel as a kind of afterthought of God's, which he devised when sin ruined his creation. But here we see that the gospel was God's forethought to create, not afterthought, but forethought. God created the heavens and the earth with the express plan and purpose of bringing all things to their ultimate goal through the suffering and death of Christ. And that that's about as, I think that's succinct, Comment. I think that's about as clearly as one could state it, that the whole purpose for, I, I changed that meaning off to purpose for creation, is Christ. God's purpose is in Christ. What he purposed to do in Christ. God created the heavens and the earth with the express plan and purpose of bringing all things to their ultimate goal through the sufferings and death of Christ. So creation in creation, we see the centrality of the gospel. Then number two, Christ is, and I changed again the word meaning. I don't like that word. Christ is the purpose of the Old Testament covenants and law. He said the Old Testament sets out a great deal in great detail, sets out in great detail the fact that it was God's will to relate to his people in a specific way. In the redemptive process, God relates to man in covenant. The covenant is a constitution which sets out the nature of the relationship between God and Israel, his chosen people. The law of Moses is the most comprehensive expression of this covenant relationship which is established through the gracious, redemptive work of God. The New Testament picks up the covenant theme and speaks of Jesus Christ as the one who fulfills it. His birth brings to fruition all the covenant promises of the Old Testament. That Jesus fulfilled the law, Matthew 5, 17, means that he lived as the perfect covenant partner with God. In other words, 
he was without sin. And not only was he the perfect covenant partner with God, partner a covenant presupposes two parties. He was the perfect covenant partner with the Father, but he was the perfect covenant partner with us as well. He covenanted with us in the absence of our even having knowledge or existence for that matter. I was contemplating this morning. I don't know how I got into it. My thoughts are often random, as my wife will tell you. But I got thinking about something that we hear our brother Gormley sometimes say more than once. That Christ not only loved me before I was lovable, but before I was at all. We were, he was the perfect covenant partner for us before we even had our existence. (laughs) But in his purposes, with him, there is no time. He is the ever-present I am. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. Perfect covenant. So Christ is the purpose of the Old Testament. Covenants and law. We see the centrality again of the gospel. The third, Christ is the purpose of prophecy. He says, speaking of the law and the prophets, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, Matthew 5, 17. It is a mistake to see this reference to the prophets as meaning that Jesus fulfilled certain messianic predictions which he scattered throughout the prophetic writings. The statement is all-inclusive and means that all that the prophets spoke are fulfilled in Christ. He said, I came to fulfill the prophets, not just to fulfill the fact that they made prophecies of what they were. He is himself the embodiment of the fulfillment of all that they said. And so in prophecy, you see again this theme of the centrality, the absolute centrality. Number four, Christ and he again is the. I don't like saying Christ is anyway. The scripture doesn't specifically state. I personally dislike that terminology. I'm not saying it's wrong or defective. I'm just saying I personally don't like it. And I change that. Christ gives the meaning of the Christian experience. He gives the meaning to the Christian experience. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ. The the Christ that he refers to is the Christ described in Philippians 2, that is, Christ that suffered in the flesh was exalted to the place of honor with God. It is the Christ of the gospel who is Lord. And for Paul, it is this Christ who gives life its only possible meaning. Skipping down to the last paragraph, he said, From this fact, of the gospel existence of Christ for us, 
And from this fact alone comes the motive and the power for our Christian experience. All the fruits of the gospel are just that, fruits of the gospel. Regeneration, faith, sanctification, final perseverance are all fruits of the gospel. They can grow on no other tree. Legalistic demands, conjolery, browbeatings for deeper commitment and total surrender, when they're cut loose from the grace of the gospel, are but wretched weeds which can produce only despondency, disillusionment, and rebelliousness. And how many of us have seen that? Seen that in circles in which we have moved. Legalistic demands cut loose from the grace of the gospel. <laughs> I thought that was well put by Goldsworthy. So the centrality of the gospel seen in that Christ gives, it's Christ who gives meaning to the Christian existence. It's not some man's rules, regulations, or they're all fruits of the gospel. And then number five, the first coming of Christ the gospel event, establishes the significance of the second coming. Christ is the purpose in the second coming. Perhaps, says Goldsworthy, Goldsworthy perhaps one of the greatest reasons for misunderstanding of the book of Revelation is the failure to grasp the relationship between the first and second comings of Christ. Let us be very clear about this point. Christ does not return to do some new or different work. His return in glory will be to consummate the finished work of his life, death, and resurrection. At his coming, he will be revealed in all his glory to all principalities and powers. That which the believer now grasps by faith will be open to every eye. That which the believer now owns by faith and which is in Christ, his substitute will be perfected as the reality in himself. The status that we now have in Christ will become the state we have in ourselves. I think that's pretty well put. Now, of course, when he says that the misunderstanding, he says uh, failure to grasp the relationship between the first and second coming of Christ. Christ does not return to do some new or different work. Of course, there will be, he, he means by that, I hope he means by that, as to redemption. He, there will be new things. The whole heaven and earth will be new. There will be new things, new things done, new things seen. He's not denying that. He's simply saying, he's talking about the centrality of the gospel. As to this gospel, there is no new thing to be done. The gospel is complete. And the salvation wrought by it is complete. And that's the end of that. And now, I would conclude simply with some of his words under the title, Living by Faith Means Living by the Gospel, page 176. I will conclude with this subject 
of faith. Again, I, I marvel always at the providence of God. I don't orchestrate these things. We brought the message this morning. You know the contents of the message. And I had already prepared this uh, conclusion to my uh, to the lecture for this morning that it has to do with faith. He said, for the present, the lion's glory is veiled. Only faith can perceive it, perceive it through the gospel. The testimony of the New Testament to Jesus as the reigning Christ is one that can only be believed or rejected. For there is no objective proof of it. You know, I thought when I read that, I thought of this. You remember the Shroud of Turin <laughs> toured the whole world. Supposedly it was the very shroud that Jesus wore and etc. And uh, it toured the whole world. And of course it was testified, testimony was given that many were saved because they saw that shroud that wouldn't have been saved had they not seen that proof. No, there is, there is no objective proof other than an empty tomb. And even that, there's controversy about which one is the real one. But his point is that it is by faith. We can try to evaluate the records of the four Gospels with regard to the historic events of Jesus' life, death, resurrection. But in the end, we cannot perceive that our salvation lies in those events other than but by believing that it is so because God assures us that it's so. In other words, our confidence is not in the historical record of these events. Our confidence is in the word of God, the testimony of God concerning these events. Then he says on 177, so we live by faith, not by sight. Faith is never a vaguely defined thing for Paul. It is always defined by its object, Jesus Christ. Faith means implicit trust in the Christ of the gospel to save and sustain us. To live by faith simply means to live by the gospel. Picking up on that thought, but jumping forward in our text, I would conclude with a paragraph from page 184. Goldsworthy says there, Thus the believer becomes a child of God, and I would add, by faith, but remains a sinner. He becomes an inheritor of the new age, but remains a dweller in the old age. He receives eternal life, but unless Christ comes first, he will suffer sickness and death, before he is resurrected to life. The Christian not only does not escape the woes of this sinful world, but he must also be content to lose favor with the world 
through nonconformity to its standards. Suffering then is the norm of Christian experience. Far from removing suffering from us, becoming a Christian compounds it. That is why we walk by faith and not by sight. That means that we live according to what we know by faith to be true. That we are the children of God and that our salvation is sure. It means that we do not live by what we experience. Reality cannot be gauged by what we feel or by the circumstances of our lives. What we now possess by faith is in Christ in heaven. Colossians 3.3, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So again, it is, this whole thing is by faith. It's by faith. Altogether by faith. But you see, and I'm only interested in showing to you the centrality of this message, the centrality of the gospel, and that all of the scriptures are tied, have their very existence, all of history. You know, there's that, and I know it's a little trite, but it's actually doctrinally sound. They say history is his story. That's actually correct. History is his story. And it all focuses in the person Christ and all of those categories he named which were only five you could name others it all has its foundation in the person of Christ and only that and that can only be attained by faith we hold these things by faith all right any questions comments added light Told you it was a brief lesson. <clears throat> All right. I think I'm going to have to take possession. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> to control for the use of the term trade, no objective proof. What? <laughs> well, I think I thought him to be meaning we don't trust in physical evidence. That's what I thought he was saying. We don't we don't have our because what he's talking about in that context is faith. And in the context of the subject of faith, we don't rest on things we can see physically, which are objective truth. I mean, objective things. That's what I thought he was saying. If that's what he was saying, I agree. If he was saying something else, then I don't know. Well, I can't really tell what he's saying because it doesn't go on and his terms. Right. Objective truth. Right. But if he is suggesting that the testimony of God is not objective proof, then we, we, we do, we're going to have a disagreement. Yeah. Uh, there. 
because it is objective proof. And that proof is known by faith. Yes. And faith is absolutely a valid means of knowing a proof. Faith, let me say this. Let me process that. Faith is a, say that again. Faith, faith is, a is a valid means of knowing a proof. Objective truth. Uh, an objective more, proof. More valid than any of our senses, which may be in error. Yes. Yes. That is true in the instruction that the Lord Himself has instructed. He will have it that the beginning of knowledge is faith. In that sense, faith is the way to know what is true, the truth of God. His comment is offered in the context of classical apologetics. And your average naysayer, I understand his point. You're just looking at the defense of Christ as a as a thing in history. There is very little or arguably no objective proof mm-hmm. to the average man because you have even the writings which you could say are probably the most of the, the strongest pieces of evidence of this historical person that he did. Even those are questioned mm-hmm. as to their being without corruption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so scholars disagree on validity. We have our pictures of it, we have the drawings, we have etc. etc. So on that regard, the objectors do say you have no proof that Jesus even existed, and if he did, certainly have no proof that he was a son of God. Mm-hmm. There is no object that is true. And I would think, I would argue that the Lord has instructed in that way, uh, not only to someone walking in the believer, but as preventative for us if we need to put our faith in these But John is saying that the testimony of God is an objective it fact. It is an objective proof. But apart from the faith that God gives, He'll never lay hold of that objective truth. I don't think Goldsworthy was thinking, well, I'm not saying he wasn't capable and didn't. I'm just saying in his writings, I don't think he was looking that deeply. Uh, into any of that because his context of teaching was he simply teaching simple people, non-scholars, uh, the truths about Christ, the truth and centrality of the gospel. But John, but John's point is is uh, well taken, albeit I think on a different level from which Goldsworthy was was seeking to teach. Which is always a danger for all of us. And while while that may be true, it also requires, as we have said before, as you mentioned in the opening, your comments today, is it requires a 
significant level of care in the choice of our words. Yeah. Because someone reading that, just simply reading that, may come to the conclusion without further explanation that both words are simply admitting, oh, there's no objective proof of the gospel. There's no objective proof of Christ. And, and so he's just overturned his whole argument. Right, right. Well, one of the reasons, uh, I don't know if I've stated this before, I may not have. One of the reasons I didn't just suggest it, just get this book for everybody and ask you to read it. That's one of the reasons. There's so many places where I feel that his, his wording is is less than cautionary. And so I, I just opted to read from it what I felt is useful for us and, and even some of that with a little bit of adjustment rather than just say, here's the book, read it, because I, I wouldn't be comfortable making that suggestion to anyone. Uh, I, 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 I dislike his terminology in enough places that I don't wholesale recommend the book. I'm just using it as a study platform for us. And certainly I appreciate John and Luke or anybody else pointing out somewhere where a bit more clarification would be wise. Because there's certainly plenty of room for that. And we have had some tremendous, I think, for the church growth. We have had some wonderful discussions <laughs> as a result of, of reading from Goldsworthy, it has sparked some great discussions that I think are helpful for all of us. And that's what you do in a class. It's not a sermon. All right, let's pray together again, please. And remember.